You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105. The last thing I expected this summer was to suddenly encounter the Gorgon's Head. Fortunately, it didn't turn me to stone on the spot. It was a striking artwork in stone that merely surprised, and I discovered it on an art adventure in a Cambridgeshire village. I'm Simon Burton and welcome to Cambridge Arts Roundup, where we'll go behind the scenes in a major play series, find out about sculpting in stone, discover the art of using a pen religiously, and look back on a perfect summer's arts event. In this edition, we visit the artistic director of the Cambridge Shakespeare Festival, Dr David Crilly, to hear about this year's lineup and preview the plays. We look at form and sculpting in stone with artist Mel Fraser at her studio near Wilbraham as she prepares for open studios and talks on creativity. We make a visit to the calligraphy exhibition at the Wolf Institute, which reveals the art of keeping messages of faith alive in beautiful writing. And we visit Art in the Garden with art conservator Penny Heath as she hosts the arts community and a charity project that's becoming vital to the city. If you've ever had a go at acting, you'll remember the trauma of learning your lines and getting them just perfect for the nerve-wracking first performance. When acting Shakespeare, the trouble's more than double in having to load them with the correct emphasis and meaning and deliver them with resonance. Cambridge Shakespeare Festival is now underway in the College Gardens and once again we'll draw in people from all over Europe to sample an event which has delighted so many and runs over July and August. Former PhD student from Magdalen College, Oxford, and Cambridge University music lecturer Dr. David Crilly has been directing the festival for 35 years. He says he started with absolutely no knowledge of theatre, and it's amazing how it's grown. Because, as I say, it was it was just an idea of something to do over the summer, and I enjoyed it so much that I just carried on, and, it, and it's just grown from that moment. It must be very demanding on your time. I wonder how you managed to, to, to direct so many productions in one year. I mean, it, well, I don't direct them myself. I was supposed to be directing Julius Caesar this year, but we had to we had a change of plan. But last year, I, di- I directed A Midsummer Night's Dream. We normally do either six or eight productions each year, and I have a team of directors who have worked with the festival for many, many years and and so they they will each do one or two productions which plays are being staged in the gardens this year in july we have king lear which is a king's college we have 12th night at downing college and we have as you like it at st john's taming the shrew is in the second half that's oh. in the one of the uh, the autumn the august uh, productions uh, that's uh, at king's college and we have henry v at trinity and the second half is the midsummer night's dream midsummer night's uh, dream of yeah. course we can't do we, we can't do the summer without doing a midsummer night's dream who's playing king lear who's playing puck who's playing kate in the taming of the shrew and who's doing viola in the in 12th night I can tell you that Andrew Stephen is playing King Lear. Mm. Andrew's first performance in the Cambridge Shakespeare Festival was in 1994 when he played Puck uh, in a production that I that I directed. Since then, he's played Petruchio in the Shrew, in the Shrew. He's played Hamlet. He's played Macbeth and lots of other things besides. So that's uh, that, that that's going to be a great production. I'm looking forward to. That. Are there some rising stars in the lineup? It's it's quite funny to be you know in in November or January or something to be sitting at home watching TV, watching some uh, police drama or something, and then suddenly a couple of the actors from the, the festival pop up. And, you know, because we've... I mean, over a 1,000 people have been involved in the festival over the years. So we, we, we see people quite regularly on TV and in the theatre. Do, do they spend a lot of time developing particular methods like resonance and all this kind of stuff to get that full-bodied Shakespeare um, um, uh, vocal range, basically? Well, they, they will have already done that because they're all trained, experienced actors. So they, we, uh, that's something that you find out right away in the audition process. We give them some 
some rather demanding exercises to do at the at the audition stage to to see what kind of vocal range they have. So uh, they're they're all able to project and fill the space. How difficult is it to act Shakespeare really well? Because um, it's it's not quite the same as anything else, is it? Um, I th- I think it's only it, it only creates a problem for some actors if they don't know what they're saying. Some people approach Shakespeare's language as though it's a foreign language, as though it's something which is very kind of um, clever and uh, specialised. But actually, it's 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 all English. And uh, 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 and if people just spend a, a little bit of time familiarising themselves with the nature of the, the the language, the the chains of imagery that Shakespeare uses. And that just the terminology, which may not be immediately familiar, but once you know what it is, then you understand it. And then it's it's just like anything else. If if you if you know what you're saying, you say it with conviction, you say it with meaning, you say it with passion. Then it, it's uh, it's exactly the same as as saying anything. Now Shakespeare's plots are quite unbeatable. Is there a personal favourite for you? Which usually my favourite Shakespeare play is the one I'm directing at the moment. Yeah. I have a, a a great fondness for Macbeth. That was the first. Shakespeare that I, I directed and I've done quite quite a lot of work on that on the on a, a kind of director's approach to it and looking at it from a structural and linguistic point of view and I mean we tend to think that Shakespeare's plays are in five parts because they're in five acts but actually they're not Macbeth in particular is more like a kind of classical symphony it's in three sections uh, but that's quite a long discussion I suppose to go into <laughs> I mean, it, 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 for someone who's been involved in Shakespeare for a long time, you must know his work back to front by now, I would have thought. Pret- yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I, I was once um, uh, tested on Macbeth. As I say, that's the one I'm, uh, I started with. And I got past the, the, the halfway mark before I dropped anyone's lines. Well, that's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Do mishaps ever happen behind the scenes or during performances? All the time. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. the time. It's uh, the, We've had a number of... Uh, catastrophes really bizarre things when we we did a production of a midsummer night's dream along this was a long time ago and the and the centerpiece of the of the stage was a huge ancient tree which fell down in the middle of the performance and there was a kind of detonation as the as the trunk snapped and the uh, the audience scattered all over the garden and the tree came down and in the middle of our seating it must be pretty difficult to ad lib when something like that happens shakespeare is so magical that it, that, that, that at times you don't need to ad lib and i remember at that on that uh, particular moment we announced the the interval at that point and we uh, re- re- reconfigured the seating somewhere else in the garden and then at the end part of oberon's speech he, he says uh, think of this night's accidents as the cruel vexation of a dream and, and the audience just burst out laughing and we got a round of applause and what are your favorite lines and situations in shakespeare my, one of my favorite lines is uh, from uh, the taming of the shrew one of the characters says uh, sit by my side and let the world slip we shall ne'er be younger and that's kind of the ethos of the festival let's just do it now let's enjoy it now let's make it magical now and tomorrow is is another day um tell me a little bit about the wonderful settings of the college gardens that you've got this year and and also um the the problems you might have with choreography in a garden um well well the the gardens are spectacular we're in uh, king lear's at uh, in king's college fellows garden a uh, very kind of uh, precious area, and it's enclosed. It's beautifully sculpted, but but it has some um, wild areas as well that we're going to use this year. St John's Scholars Garden, just off Queen's Road, there is again another beautiful garden. It has a fantastic cracked willow tree in the centre that we use as the centrepiece for the stage. We have Twelfth Night at Downing College, which is a kind of uh, neo-Georgian square, which lends itself 
beautifully for, to, to that play. The, the thing is that the, the, the gardens don't present problems. They create possibilities for us. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, if you see it in a theatre, the actors run off stage and they're gone. But here, if, uh, if the lovers run off chasing each other through the woods... They really run off chasing each other through the woods, and you can see them, you know, uh, 50 or 60 yards away as the scenes are going on. The lovers are still running in between the trees. So it, and the the natural light. Uh, we were we were. Oh, I remember a review which complimented our use of lighting, and I thought, well, use any lighting. The sun goes down. It's uh, uh, but we had uh, it was Romeo and Juliet again at Kings. They have a beautiful pergola there and two massive uh, trees either side at the far end of the garden. And in the second half of the play, we had the full moon in between the two trees, and it was just uh, better than anything that you could possibly recreate in a, in a, in a theatre space. Dropping in on open studios can have its shocks, delights and surprises, and offers people a rare chance to enter the artist's world and find out what's there to be enjoyed. I visited local artist Mel Fraser at her studios near Wilbraham to see how she worked with sculpting in stone and soon found myself immersed in the complexities of the medium and the ambitious tasks which she set herself. I found myself fixated by an imaginative bust of the head of Medusa, albeit this time with a gentle and loving face, depicting the other side of an enigmatic woman with legendary snakes for hair. Mel began life as a graphics illustrator and 3D computer animator and then decided she wanted to work on sculpture. Her work challenges the intellect and imagination and is of an exacting standard that has to be seen close up and there's a myriad of artefacts to sample. How big an opportunity is it for you to show off your artwork in, 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 in open studios? It, it, it must uh, bring a lot of people um, into your world. Open studios, I totally love i've been doing open studios since 1997 and i have not missed a single year even through covid i opened up my studio obviously social distancing etc i was fortunate i was able to do that i love open studios because i i want people to experience sculpture to be able to touch it and not to be intimidated by it to see it in a natural setting I've created little areas within the land that I can use, uh, sort of little pockets, natural garden settings, just just really engaging with people. I've had people who've been following, coming to me every year for years, and I love it. You know, it, it's a it's a wonderful experience. You know, love to sort of welcome people into my environment and to hopefully get some joy out of seeing the work. So the piece here is Chachio di Friami and Circle of Flame. It's a piece that uh, was part of a series of three and this is the smaller of the of the pieces and I wanted to explore the movement of fire and uh, sort of wind within uh, using obviously the hard material of statuary marble and to have the delicacy of, of uh, the light also to sort of be able to penetrate through so as, as we walk around the piece you can see that there's light that comes through and the stone just catching capturing one of the elements in stone which mm-hmm. is quite a, quite an interesting project it works very well i think thank you <laughs> um yeah i mean i also wanted it to sort of merge from from the sphere and uh sort of just sort of have that elevation to sort of lift lift up and also the delicacy, so the finishing. I, I don't tend to highly polish mm-hmm. most of my work, especially the marble, because I love the delicacy 
um, of the softness of the surface when yeah. when it's not highly polished. Huh. And, and does an idea like that come to you in your sleep? I mean, where where does it come from? The what the idea the of idea of creating an artwork like that because it's oh. a, you know, it's this wonderful smooth stone ring with um, flames that um, coming out of it. Um, and it's got a hole through the middle that you can look through as well. So it basically has lots of things to kind of um, wake you up, doesn't it? Yeah, I, well, I think that's the kind of, was it the, the million or the billion dollar question? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, where, where does creativity come from? <laughs> where do the ideas come from? Sometimes you just don't know. Um, I think it's exploring movement was the first sort of preconcept to, mm-hmm. to doing this work. And again, movement is a, is a, is a massive, integral f- part of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's sort of pushing, pushing the boundaries and, you know, making stone do what it's really not supposed to. Mm. I mean, that, that seems to combine um, both um, a solid thing, an ethereal thing like a flame, and then it also has the texture almost of something that's floppy at the same time. Um, so having got those three things into one work seems to be quite an achievement. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I guess also, you know, the movement of fabric, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of it's that fleeting moment sort of within your mind's eye when you when you see a flame or, you know, the whisper of smoke. It, it, it's always, it, I think it captivates mm human beings Mm -hmm. you know we we get drawn to to that Mm -hmm. um, movement or the movement on water Mm -hmm. Um, we're always watching that movement suddenly and then it's gone Mm -hmm. and you know we want to sort of not necessarily replicate it but but to have a a sense a sensory sense of it does it also represent to a certain extent i mean looking at a lot of these things these large sculptures with horses heads on and things like that this notion of a civilization there's a darker side to, to yeah, some of the work yeah. um, and not, you know, not all of it's necessarily going to be explained straight away mm. and um, you know, I've worked with you know, sort of various people over the years and had the privilege of working with Shona uh, sculptors and so there's a piece in the distance mm-hmm. there, a sort of figurative piece and I love the fact that at one point um, I met one of the the elders and he introduced me to the concept that uh, they call the stone the dream stone Mm. so you can't impose your will Um, it Mm. won't it won't respond Mm. to you and for me I I love that I love that idea but it also shows a huge humbleness and humility to to what you're doing and respect for the medium this piece is called Emergence and it's created out of a, um, a large boulder, raw boulder of um, springstone from Zimbabwe. And the beauty of this stone is that it has a, a gorgeous jet black um, sort of finish if you highly polish it. But also within this particular piece it's got these incredible uh, veins of green granite lines running through it. Uh, this piece was a, um, a, a sort of con- almost a conceptual piece I had no preconceived ideas of to what I was actually going to achieve from from the rock all I felt was it was going to be figurative I didn't know in which way mm-hmm. um, and so when it's you know sort of highly polished it I, I wanted this almost liquid like like movement liquid oil mm-hmm. effect to it so that in certain lights it, it, it's just 
just sort of um, a, a mass that you can sort of feel has a has a movement to it. Uh, and there's a kind of face emerging at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I noticed that this whole um, this whole idea in Zimbabwe um, in carving in rock. You know, you have a lot of animals and things like that, and they, they come out of the rock. Mm-hmm. So the rock becomes instead of being this kind of um, stone-like thing it's a generative thing in the same way in the, in the um, sculpture and it's almost as if the rock generated the the sculpture you know um, and, and that's an interesting way of, of doing it I think yeah wow. I mean I, I think that also with this particular piece I I, I I initially felt that there were two figures within it mm. and I started carving and sort of roughing out a, a sort of parts of it and then realized that it wasn't actually two figures at all it was one mm. um, but there's a mask that's mm. either being peeled away mm-hmm. or enclosing depending mm. on your viewpoint and, and the element of mystery obviously comes into it as well doesn't it because yeah. it is mysterious I mean as a sculpture um, and it's a large sculpture it's a it's one worth coming to see at open studios I think definitely and you've got this uh, these fingers on top um, so what do those represent well this, this is the the holding of the of the mask mm. and also the sort of um, the, the the support the embracing of mm. the body as well as as the, the the head is sort of emerging sort of underneath and mm. being revealed now obviously um, the, the, there seems to be a slight connotation with Guernica um, which is that it's something that belongs in the subconscious to some extent mm-hmm. um, how did that come across I think I think that's probably pretty accurate mm. um, and uh, you know it was, it was a piece I did a while ago and challenging myself on on a larger scale and wanting to yeah just just sort of not not um, not impose just just sort of feel feel my way through the the process mm. and in in the creative realm and explore and see what transpires mm. and and that in itself can be incredibly exciting mm. um, but also quite scary mm-hmm. uh, because sometimes you have no idea how you, <laughs> you got to that point <laughs> <laughs> well it's wonderful um, the next one shall we, shall we go okay. what else have we got um, something completely different so um, the horses here are a series so there, are f- there were four um, so Boreas and Zephyrus uh, the four horses of the of the gods mm. and um, so I wanted to depict them in sort of quite gentle soft realms and uh, partly abstract but also Forming into sort of classical, almost classical uh, sculptural horse heads. But yes, the sort of obviously the movement from the the head going up through mm-hmm. the sort of abstract of mm-hmm. the mane. Um, I, I wanted that sort of flowing, mm. flowing aspect to to them. Um, you know, they're up there. I would say almost life-size horse heads, mm. and um, so you know they're, they're of a substantial size. The pieces themselves. Uh, it sort of prompts that question: is how how do you get something gentle and natural out of something as hard as stone? Uh, a lot of work, and quite often wearing your fingers away. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> is all I'm going to say on that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, it moves round. Oh yeah. Uh, so we've got a sculpture that that moves round with wonderful 
it, it almost looks like a human ear to some extent, doesn't it? I mean, you know, is it is it listening to you? Ah, well, that that's interesting because these are called nebula. Mm. So we're going into sort of spatial context of things, mm. and um, so these are very pure forms and dealing with just a very subtle subtle sort of twist on a almost um, sort of like a lozenge shape with slight indentation in the middle. Uh, so there's a Belgian black piece with um, some very striking white lines, not many of them, but just a few. And the corresponding piece in Carrara marble, I actually incised the lines. So the Carrara marble piece I did first, and I wanted to have this this element of like this sort of spatial concept, so drawing into sort of you know a timeline, a sort of vortex within space. Mm. And when I started the the Belgian black piece of marble, I didn't realise that there was this very strong coral sort of lines running through it, and I had planned to incise them. And when I saw the lines appear, I, the stone had already done it for me. Mm. <laughs> so I kept it completely, perfectly smooth. Um, th- and th- this could be um, a male and female. They mm-hmm. could be two poles of something. Um, they both they both move if you want them to. Yeah. Um, they have um, a positive and negative uh, connotation. Um, so they kind of play off each other, don't they? They do. Yeah. They do. And um, But also, I think... I mean, they look very simple mm. forms, mm. but I I love I love playing with very pure form. But mm. in order to to do the pure form, you have to be incredibly critical with your eye. Mm. And um, well, one of the things I noticed the about about this one, this side, if we go over, um, is y- you create with your stonework something that's tremendously satisfying for some reason. I don't know why, it's, why it is like that. But it is a very satisfying thing, that, isn't it? As a, as, a, as a piece of work. I mean, it just kind of makes you want to do something with it. You know? uh-huh. um, and, um, and, 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 you know, touch it or explore the texture or the curvature and what have you in it, which is quite, quite a thing to, to work with to get it to that, that degree of perfection, basically. Well, th- thank you. Yeah. I... I um for, I mean, for me, when when things are not balanced, um, it actually sort of almost physically makes me feel sort of uncomfortable, mm. and um, I'm always wanting to correct it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I, I I'm always playing with the sort of the aesthetics of the piece, and even if I've finished something and I th- I feel it's finished, and then I move it in a certain way and it's not quite where I feel it should be mm. I will dive right in and mm. you know sort of you work it through. feeling of forces pulling through yes. it as well that's another um, thing that the lines do beautifully and the indenture it gives you that feeling that, that the forces are at work on the stone which is something great. Well th- that, that was the the concept of the whole piece so you have this sort of um, this sort of time in space mm-hmm. but that is pulling round and so all, all the lines are interconnected mm-hmm. and move mm. and you know explore explore their uh, sort of vortices mm-hmm. and yeah I just wanted to it was just 
I, I don't know where the idea came from. It's just one of those things that think, yeah, I want to explore that. And okay. I've done a few series of pieces with, with a sort of spatial uh, sort of element in mind. What happens when you, you've come up with an idea and you've got it clearly in your mind? Uh, well, you have to uh, work work through the the concept of the piece, and w- once you've reached that point, and you then have to work through from the beginning to the end in your in your head in your mind, because um, I do myself, uh, almost carve it before I've carved it, and to understand exactly you know uh, the strengths and weakness weak points within within the stone and work uh, appropriately to to the to the form mm-hmm. um, so maintaining a, an integrity uh, throughout the whole process mm-hmm. and yeah I've worked stone deliberately to break mm. so that I understand how far I can actually go uh, yeah yeah wow this uh, room at the studio is mostly studies, um, so a lot of heads uh, exploring concepts within life, uh, probably some protests as well, and also um, studies for a lot of abstract work. So they're they're like my sketch, like a, like my sketches, like in in a sketchbook. So something that I will uh, use to work further hmm. towards. They're absolutely dazzling pieces of artwork in, in, in all kinds of different stones and stones with uh, coloration. Is that quartz you've been working on? That's actually a piece of English alabaster and um, it has a beautiful sort of red fire running through it. Um, it was sort of um, a stone that I managed to get hold of which had been seconded uh, for restoration and this was a sort of um, a leftover piece that um, wasn't going to be used and um, so yes I've got various pieces of stone in here little little works in um, almost glass-like stone and uh, orange and honey uh, again alabaster so the light transmits through through the stone and just gives a beautiful ethereal quality to it. Oh, absolutely wonderful. And, and this um, wonderful bust of Medusa. Yeah. Um, that's <laughs> incredible. Um, wow, what an amazing piece of artwork. Um, and Medusa with a friendly face. Um, yeah, well, I've been told that uh, she was sitting in the middle of the room at one point at eye level and um, had, uh, yeah, made a few people think, oh my gosh, she's watching me. Everywhere I move, she's watching me. <laughs> And uh, um, but I wanted her to have a yes a softness to her. Um, she's usually depicted as being very aggressive and angry, and um, actually, that's really not not the true story. Well, she's kind of smiling at you with this kind of I'm not really going to hurt you. Uh, no, indeed, indeed, <laughs> um, indeed. But it's also got a sort of note of. Of, is, is this person being friendly or is, is, am I just about to get thumped kind of feeling? <laughs> Good, I'm, 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 I'm glad you picked up on that. that that's exactly what I'm aiming for. <laughs> False sense of security, perhaps. <laughs> so this head um, here is uh, a study that I decided to do. Didn't have any sort of, uh, again, preconceived ideas of, of who or how it was going to be. I just wanted a sort of delicate study. Um, and an expression that uh, was 
um, secure in in their own knowledge mm -hmm. and so I cast uh, three more um, and obviously kept the master here and so there are three heads in wax and I decided I wanted to portray the speak see and hear concept mm -hmm. but in a contemporary form and because I personally feel that you know we all have a, um, a duty to speak out uh, to see what's going on and not be deaf to it mm -hmm. and um, <coughs> so I I put the concept with obviously headphones um, face mask before Covid and um, glasses shades and obviously during the troubles now and the war in Ukraine, um, I decided I, I wanted to show some solidarity in how I could, as an artist, give something out that said, you know, again, yeah. we have a duty to speak, we have a duty to see what's, what is happening, and we cannot be deaf to it at all. Um, Mel Fraser, thank you so much indeed for showing me around your studios and garden. It's been absolutely fascinating and I, I recommend it to anyone who's doing open studios because it really is a fantastic visit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for um, coming. <laughs> you found us. This is Cambridge 105. The business of recording history accurately, preserving faith and keeping the peace has always been a seriously problematic one, and it's been the job of humble calligraphers to do it through the ages with no small measure of artistry, flair and humanity. Award-winning international calligraphy artists Germana Medledge, Michel Anastasio and Maida Noor have come together in June through till September to exhibit at University of Cambridge's Wolf Institute in a show entitled The Written Word, Timeless Arabic and Hebrew Calligraphy, offering masterpieces in a range of styles. Curators Mohammed Abraham Ahmed and Dunya Habash, both PhD students at Cambridge's Wolf Institute, say interfaith focus is at the heart of the project, which celebrates the elegant representation of vast concepts and ideas from the Abrahamic faiths. Um, first of all, can you tell me what the Wolf Institute is all about? The Wolf Institute um, is really all about encounter, specifically between people of different faiths, uh, focusing mostly on, on Jews, Muslims and Christians in Britain and beyond. And to that end, we do academic research, we do outreach work, we do other encounters as and when we can, to the best of our ability to make sure that people are engaging with, with you know, modern discussions surrounding interreligious issues and also, as, as we are today, showing uh, the artistic the exhibition of, of that encounter in practice. What kind of experiences have you had at the, in, in working with this institute? It's been wonderful. It's really, I've been here for about four years now and I've just opened up to completely new communities. Um, the British Jewish community, for example, we, we encounter them a lot. And uh, as, a, as a Muslim myself, it's just been so wonderful to have an open space here where people, everyone is comfortable to talk about difficult, contentious issues and to be 
be very friendly and engaged with with one another. And obviously, interfaith issues is very much um, uh, um, uh, the, the the theme that's behind um, the art, the fantastic artwork which we're um, seeing today. Why is it, do you think, that um, that uh, art can bring people together, and why is it that faith expresses itself in these wonderful patterns that, that arise again and again? Yeah, it's it's a brilliant question, and I'm afraid I'm going to go a little bit historical here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what we have really went with, with the birth of Islam uh, in the seventh century is we have an iconoclastic tradition and it doesn't really like images, statues, graven images or drawings at all. So what we have really is the development of geometry and calligraphic designs and, and, and that sort of art which which really develops um, in the Middle East and beyond you know with, with the expansion of the Muslim empires and then Jewish and Christian populations internalize that and then it was sort of a cross-pollination really of, of borrowing from each other's ideas and then we come to what we have today which is in the Middle East we have beautiful beautiful designs of geometry and calligraphy. Can you tell me a little bit about the range of styles that you've got on display here today. Yeah, so we have Jumana Madlid. She's an expert in Kufic script, which is uh, one of the earliest scripts uh, of Arabic. We have also Maida uh, Noor. She she is focused on the Maghribi script, which is mainly Morocco North North African uh, scripts, and it developed in that region. And then we have Michelle, who who does Hebrew calligraphy, but he's really fascinating because he kind of adds a modern interpretation to very traditional. Uh, Hebrew characters and it's very all of them very beautiful work. Um, how do um, modern techniques with calligraphy which is absolutely fascinating as an art form um, how do they contrast with what's happened in the past because they look very modern the things that you've got in display here today. Part, part of it is is that these works all the works that you know the historical works from the 10th and 11th century that we look at now they're not in in the best of conditions so when we see them we see them as old antiquated works but actually what we have upstairs is probably what they would have looked like you know in in, in the historical uh, tradition they, they would have looked like that when they were being produced and so actually what we have upstairs is we there are some modern flares and artistic designs but really we have a piece of history as well this is exactly you know what, what these texts would have looked like when they were produced in the 10th and 11th centuries. Now, now calligraphy is tremendously um, important um, for the entire culture of the world because that's how the, the history was recorded. That's how it was written. And it was written beautifully by these people, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, just to piggyback off of what Mohammed just said, uh, Jumana especially, that's, that's her whole ethos. She's trying to recreate um, these ancient texts and into kind of modern versions of them so that we can see them and touch them and, and feel them. This, this expression is illustrating a lot of the dynamism of calligraphy, isn't it? Ab absolutely, um, and and also uh, the importance of calligraphy, as you were saying about about recording history. But not only that, it's about uh, expressing the word of God in many cases. Um, and for for many people uh, throughout history, especially those of the Abrahamic faiths, there was no there was no document, there was no word more important than the word of God. Um, so when it comes to expressing what the Quran looks like, what the the Gospels look like, what the Torah looks like, um, it had to be done in the best of ways in order to give it justice. It had to be absolutely beautiful because it is a beautiful thing to find your faith isn't it oh absolutely yeah, yeah, yes yeah. definitely so um you know just to preserve uh, you know one function of script the development of script was to pervert obvi preserve obviously the word of god and um another function is to beautify that that word so you know and this became the major art form in the islamic world because of what muhammad said about the kind of uh, prohibition against images um, how typically does a calligrapher's skill develop 
Oh, well, this, this um, in the classical uh, tradition, it's taken as a form of ijaza, what's called ijaza, which is a special method um, by which an apprentice sits with a master over oftentimes a number of years. And you practice and practice until the muscle memory is absolutely perfected. And then you get what's called an ijaza, which is a certification. And once the certification is given, then you, you are then the next person in that chain. And it often goes back to really historical masters from the Ottoman Empire, from even before sometimes. And, and and this is the way that, that really calligraphy is taught in the world. It's tremendously problematic for the student, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, another important element of the training of a calligrapher is the kind of spiritual elements that are involved in it, because your character is supposed to also be, you know, uh, beautified as you're going through the process. It teaches you a lot of patience. Um, it teaches you the kind of master-apprentice relationship and, and giving honor to, to the master. So it's a very humbling process as well. Um, Cambridge is a perfect place to learn about calligraphy because we have so much of it here, don't we, in the university, for people to come and have a look at. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we have, you know, from the Christian tradition, but we also have, uh, very famously, we have the Cairo Geniza, which um, Cambridge University houses many, many, many thousands of manuscripts of, um, and we're, we're very grateful for that. And that features um, Arabic passages, Judeo-Arabic passages, Hebrew passages, um, all uh, in, in the university library. Um, available for people for people to see and they, they do exhibitions also sometimes and so we get to see how a thousand years ago these people were, were doing these things um, and we have more of those than we do of the, of the modern uh, modern works actually. I suppose the key thing about this exhibition is that um, the art of calligraphy can be used to bring faiths together in peace, isn't, it? isn't that basically the message? Absolutely, that was our intention when, mm. when thinking up the idea because Wolf is very good at doing academic mm. uh, panels, you know, that, that bring different religious speakers together or academic, you know, uh, religious scholars of uh, studies and, sorry, I <laughs> missed mm. that. Anyways, uh, but the Wolf is very good at bringing together academic panels and, and, you know, people of different faith coming to listen to a lecture, for example. So we thought actually maybe it would be nice to kind of look at the artistic side of these traditions as well and bring people together for something like an exhibition, which, you know, would allow for more mingling and chatting and, and also, you know, looking at very, very beautiful art from, from all of, all of the, the traditions together. And it really is beautiful. Um, thank you very much indeed for showing me uh, um, around today. You're very welcome. The art of calligraphy is as much a process of writing scripts as it is a process of inner discipline and meditation and takes years to master. Here's artist Jamana Medledge. First of all, Jamana, tell me what you've put on display here today and why. For this event, I prepared a series of works that recreate classical layouts of old Qurans with the original materials. And um, is it difficult to, to create a modern look to many of these wonderful inherited patterns from the Quran and from um, uh, from the culture of Islam. Um, it's not. I wouldn't say it's difficult, but the difficulty lies in that the tradition that I work in has disappeared centuries ago. There's nobody teaching it, so the difficulty is learning the proper rules of it before be, being creative with it. Um, what are some of the common problems that calligraphers actually encounter when they're learning their trade? Uh, well, absence of teachers is <laughs> a common <laughs> problem. Well, the difficulties depend on where you are. So if you are in the Middle East, you'd be surprised there are not many places where you can learn. And the places where you can learn tend to be very traditional. If you are in the West, finding a place where you can learn is even more difficult. I think maybe London is one of the few places where you actually have a choice of calligraphy teachers. So it, it, it depends. It's, it is in many ways a dying art, mm. in some ways. 
it survives in ways that maybe are very codified. So finding a balance is a bit tricky. How important do you think it is as, as an art form? It is a very unique art form, definitely, because it's the written word made beautiful. So in itself, it's a whole category of art that is very meaningful to a lot of people. It, it carries a lot of meaning, that's mm. the thing. Because mm. I mean, a tremendous amount of care goes into every uh, calligraphic um, page, which, I mean, I mean, there's some tremendously bright um, um, images here. There's beautiful juxtaposition. Um, all of that care must be quite something to master. Yes, yes, but th you know that's not exclusive to calligraphy. Mm -hmm. Every mm -hmm. artist needs to practice their craft and master it. So it's just one of those um, those crafts, really. Is there a big difference between old methods and modern techniques? There can be because today calligraphers tend to rely a lot more on modern materials, and a lot of them, for instance, practice digital calligraphy only. Mm -hmm. So yes, there is a very big difference. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you find so beautiful about doing it? For me, the fact that it carries meaning is very important because I don't get as much satisfaction from images that may be beautiful but have nothing behind them. They feel a bit like theater decor to me. So this one, it's kind of a f complete art for me. And the, the process of creating it is so meditative. It is in itself um, a whole process. Does your personality come out in the work, do you feel? Well, I am a Virgo, so, mm -hmm. you know, guess. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and how does the skill typically develop from being a young beginner as a calligrapher? That is an interesting question. I think there's a point where you know, you know you've left the nest. You know, suddenly you know what you're doing. It's kind of suddenly, it's like the calligraphy does you. Mm. Um, and you don't know how that happens. And it can, it doesn't happen at the same point for everybody. But suddenly you're there. And I honestly cannot explain it. What was the theme of this exhibition? The theme of this exhibition is the written word, and specifically it's the calligraphy from Jude Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam together. Um, thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge 105. Thank you. An English summer is never quite complete without a true garden event to dress up and go to. An art conservative Penny Heath's Art in the Garden event was just a ticket in May in more ways than one. She's been exhibiting a range of works from visiting artists, drawing in art enthusiasts from across the city. Inside the house I viewed ceramic boxes, mobiles, textiles and sculptures and letter carving by a stable of artists including Brenda Mayo, Daphne Carnegie, David Crow, Sue Kirk and Pippa Westerby featured along with many others. Outside work featured kinetic, ceramic, wood, metal and stone sculptures and among the many artists were artists Alan Foxley, Carol Sinclair, Mark Evans and Richard Bray. Penny Heath's event raised much-needed money for Cambridge's Red Hen charity. This garden is, is probably got more wildlife in it than any garden in Cambridge. It's never been uh, dug or ploughed since, since Victorian times. It's uh, it is life. quite splendid with its own stream running through it. Through it. I see there's a, someone's put a, a wonderful piece of artwork saying reflect, because it, it, it is a place for contemplation, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> I think the power of gardens to sort of um, to look and think beyond and feel, and there's an article Eric Marland mm -hmm. who did that large piece of letter-cutting stone called Reflect. Mm. We placed it in the middle of the water. Um, this is all pre-lockdown and COVID, and we normally buy perhaps one piece every year from the show, and we bought that not knowing what was 
coming ahead. And it's been an incredibly sort of emotional piece for the last two years um, in all sorts of levels. There's a great piece by uh, Carol Sinclair here, which is called Orctus. Yes. Now, yes. tell me about Orctus. I think it implies growth. It's a sort of primeval sort of growth figure. Uh, yeah, I think it's a wonderful piece. It's just made out of sort of, uh, I don't know, c- copper, recycled copper. A lot of artists here do use upcycling. Artists have always been upcycling, recycling forever. And it's got this amazing dense of crystal bead in the middle. Um, it just has, it feels like regeneration and, and power and a balance. It's a very special piece. Uh, for, for materials, she likes to take things off beaches and things like that, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. yeah ah. she's sort of a scavenger. Um, so, you know, pebbles, glass, um, metal, incredibly inventive. Um, now, there are certain artworks that actually live here, aren't there? Some quite splendid ones of your own, but you kind of blend those with all the, the new ones that people are exhibiting, don't you? I think there's only so many sculptures you can get into a garden, but actually, it's, I'm fascinated with absorbed new pieces. Um, and we've probably got eight, ten pieces here permanent. And then I think there's probably 20, 30 plus in the exhibition for sale. And uh, my skill is placing things so they look they look good and also work with others. Um, it's very easy to come along to focus on one thing, but I've got to make the whole thing work. It's like looking 360 degrees. It does, it does work visually very well. There's a lovely work by Mark Evans called Maze in the middle of the lawn, which you, you put there, which I think is actually marvellous. Yeah, I think if I had to choose the, the work of the week, the work of the show, I think that's the most remarkable piece. Um, it's a great horizontal slab of Portland stone, and he's carved this maze, very exacting. Um, he's a wonderful stone carver um, with a maze, and the light falls on it and creates these um, extraordinary patterns. Um, has great presence, monumental, sort of ancient, uh, monumental architectural. I hope it goes to a really important, possibly even public collection in Cambridge. It deserves to be shown. Um, this is um, a, an intriguing and, and wonderful piece here that you, you, you put on the lawn here with a circle of grass around it. Can you tell me what the story is behind it? Well, I've always had an interest in labyrinths and mazes, and I've had this big piece of Portland stone for a long time with kind of broken edges on it, and I got it from the quarry in Portland and uh, waiting for it to be used. And I decided to, a year ago to cut this big labyrinth maze on it and just, just uh, there's a piece of lettering on it which is in French which says un passage dans ce monde pour laisser une trace which means a uh, passage in this world to leave a trace and I saw the lettering on scribbled on a bench in France in a village in France and um put it in a notebook and thought I would like to cut that one day and then it, I just put the two together the passage of the maze the journey of the maze and the little piece of lettering seemed to go together now what happened to the little blue ball that was there a bit earlier someone's uh, taken it I think possibly yeah yeah. I think it was one of Penny's and I don't know whether a small child has been passed and taken it I don't know <laughs> hopefully it's replaceable because it's part of the artwork because you have this um, wonderfully engraved um, maze on the top yeah, of the, yeah. the rock in, 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 which, which is or what's the material that you're using, it, this white material? It's Portland stone, Portland from, stone from Portland yeah. in Dorset. Uh, yeah, and and they, they, then you have this imprint of the maze on it, and then you have a couple of balls. One of them is a large 
ball bearing and the uh-huh. other one is a small blue ball um, which has now disappeared quite, <laughs> quite amusingly but, but actually it has connotations of two th- well several things involving um, uh, puzzles and games doesn't yeah, it because yeah. it's like it's like um, solitaire a maze you know, a mystery uh, all at the same time and then you've got that gold cross in the middle which could be some kind of strange masonic symbol or something well you know? it's just a gold it's just the, the, the target to get to it's uh, yeah a little bit of gold leaf a little star in the middle yeah uh, and it also looks like a slab that's been taken from something with great classical antiquity as well absolutely so you played around with this idea quite quite thoroughly yeah. before you produced the work, the work. yeah absolutely uh, yeah. Uh, yeah I mean I, I trained as a stonemason so uh, a lot of my work is very you know kind of accurate but in this case it's got these kind of broken edges as well and I, I really like the the contrast between very kind of high finish and broken edges and I've always been interested in archaeology and so that this could have come from a different time and a different place and yeah yeah it's got yeah. lots of wonderful levels on it thank you very much indeed for talking that's to me all right about. pleasure all right this event it gives so much pleasure um, but one of the the main the triple benefit of it is that we have um, uh, an open evening well at first it's an admission a voluntary admission collection so people come along and they know the form you can put something in the pot it doesn't matter if it's 50p or 50 pounds but people are very generous and that all goes to support a local charity and this year it's the red hen project which is this small but very important um hard-working charity which helps people in north cambridge um particularly for aimed at children children and families who are perhaps not coping and mm. just helping them um sort out sort of like chaotic lives having schools sort or of homework um, helping single mums um very feet on the ground charity mm. uh, fantastic group of trustees who are all here helping with mm-hmm. um um, serving drinks mm. and uh, we have a giant party and we hope to raise a lot of money for them. It also helps the artists if I sell work. Mm. My name is Leslie Ford and I'm the Chair of Trustees of the Red Hen Project. And you are? Sarah Crick and I'm the Project Lead at the Red Hen Project. Now first of all, um, what is the Red Hen Project? It's a very small, reactive local charity that's been going for about 24 years mm. and we work with families who are in all sorts of difficult situations particularly to try and get them in a position where they can get their children into school. More and more of our families are in stressful situations because of poverty. We always say that being a parent is very difficult. It's particularly difficult if you're poor. And the first thing that can happen is the chaos in the family that all of that stress causes is children stop coming to school. So some, some things we do, uh, we did a lot during the pandemic for food, food packages and craft things, delivering them house to house, but we don't see that that's going to stop anytime soon. Well, what's the full toolbox that you have for helping people? We have a team of very skilled family workers and an excellent project lead, a lot of experience, um, but the m- most precious thing we've got is the trust of our community, so the families like to work with us. Um, How important is it for for a charity like yours to engage with the arts community? Um, Really important. Mm. Um, I'm particularly keen that our children and the families that we work with, that they get exposure to all all that the world has to offer, including creativity and the arts. Um, But we're working hard now, like you said, to get people back out and back comfortable. So our... For example, our project with Kettle's Yard, um, with early years communication and encouraging families to uh, read with their children and how to use books to la- um, develop language. And we're really, really delighted that soon we'll have our third book published from mm-hmm. from that um, from that project, which is particularly nice because our children 
spend eight weeks with their families um, exploring books um, uh, with a theme around a particular artist. At the end of it, the book is um, produced and they feature in the book. It's absolutely wonderful. Thank you both very much indeed for talking to Cambridge 105. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Well, having run out of time, I hope you've enjoyed being with me, Simon Burton, on Cambridge 105 Radio, and we'll tune in again soon. Wishing you much serendipity in encountering all things creative in the city until the next show.